you know, as a, as a human person, speaking to human people, we have this desire to make progress in things and make things better. And it's different things. Some of you restore cars and you want to make your car better or your house. You buy a house and you want to remodel it and make it better. Or you want to make progress. Some of you have different athletic hobbies that you do, whether it's getting better at golf or getting better at cycling, getting better at badminton. That probably isn't something that's really popular here, but, you know, we just have this desire to make progress at things. We do. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that God has built into us, and, and I'm, I could probably go around the room with the mic and say, so what is the one thing you're trying to get better at? And uh, you probably all have an answer to that, um, because I think as humans, we, we want to see progress. We want to experience progress. Um, but the question for us as Christians is, are, are, are we, do we have the main thing as the main thing in terms of what we're really trying to make progress at? And what I mean by that is, is the most important thing that you can make progress in, above all others, is your relationship with the Lord. Or, or to put it differently, your, your, um, your soul, like the progress of one's own spirit and soul to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that is, that is like God's aim for us. And it should be our aim, too, to see progress in the soul as, as we, um, as God's people, worship and do various things. And is, is that something that you're passionate about? Or, let me just, maybe this will mentally help. If you were to rate yourself between one and five, five being deeply and passionately devoted to becoming like Jesus, and one being complacent, apathetic, or call it a Jesus dabbler, um, where would you rate yourself? Like, honestly, just take a moment and think through where would you put yourself? One, complacent. Five, I'm passionate about my relationship with God and becoming more like Jesus. Okay? Put a number in your head. I want you to. Otherwise, it just doesn't kind of dig in a little, what, what we're about to say. Because this particular psalm, Psalm 19, I think offers us um, routes or ways in which the soul of a Christian person who has the Spirit of God in, in them, him or her, um, makes progress. That is, faith, the soul, is, is to grow is fed. Like every, and any living thing on planet Earth, Everything has to be fed, from a bunny to a pollywog to a baby, has to be fed. The question is, what do we feed our faith and our souls on so that we actually are conformed to the image of Jesus and we make progress in this thing called our relationship with God? What is it? Now, for some of you, this is going to be a reminder. Most of the time, we just need to be reminded. For others, this might be new. Because King David, who wrote this psalm, um, the man after God's own heart, a man after of faith tells us what feeds him, what feeds his faith, and he offers it to us in this, in this great little psalm. The first part of it, he talks about creation, in particular the heavens. Then he talks about the word or scripture. Um, and then third, he talks about dependence or grace. That's kind of the three parts of this, of this psalm. And he begins with, with, with creation itself or, or the heavens. And the content of what the heavens communicate. Now let me read it. And I want you to notice as we read how many words related to communication um, are there. They're bolded just for convenience. It says the heavens, that is the outer space, and all the bodies that 
fill outer space. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he focuses in on, on the beauty of our star, our sun. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its, feet, from its heat. He's telling us, man, when you look up into the sky and you behold the heavenly bodies, it is a, it is a, it is a sermon. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a message. It's supposed to be preaching to you. That's what he says. And the content of what it preaches is the glory of God, his wisdom, his power, his, his, uh, his, his glory, his wonder. It, it communicates. We live in a time where you go outside, I did last night, looked up into the sky, and there's a lot of light pollution, right? I actually tried to count the stars, and I, I counted about 100. If I was in San Francisco, it might be 10. Can you imagine God coming to Abraham, if he was living in the 21st century in San Francisco, saying, I am going to multiply your seed or your offspring like the stars of the sky. And he looked up and counted 10 because of light pollution. That wow, that's a big promise, God, right? Um, that's not obviously what's in mind. Is that we as God's people should look around us and take the space and the time to allow the glory of what God has created to say something to us and to our souls. It has the power to move the heart with the grandeur of the one who made it. Now, I will say, um, one of the high points of my summer, and it really was a high point, I think, for my wife and I both, is uh, this is the 45th year that we've been camping in the same place um, since I was five. And, um, and one of the things that we like to do is we like to lock the hubs in on the four-wheel drive and drive up crazy roads that scare people and go to alpine lakes that you can't get to by an ordinary car. You can take the boy out of the country, but not the country out of the boy. And um, we did it this time on July 23rd. And July 23rd happened to be the new moon. New moon means no moon. That is, there's not even a toenail, not even a sliver. So we drove up at night, and the, and the sky was pitch black. There was no moon to kind of shine on the atmosphere. So it was pitch black. Got up to these lakes called Tamarack Lakes. And um, turned off the cars, turned off the lights, and we just sat in the back of the truck. And what I, I, I have quite literally like never seen anything like this before. To say it was a blanket of stars is a, is a vast understatement. Uh, it was it was like a like a thousand Fourth of Julys, you know, fireworks only. They weren't exploding, there was no sound, it was silent, and they were just staying there. There wasn't, I don't think there was a millimeter of, of, of space where there was not a pinhole of light. And it was just everywhere. And my youngest son, Isaac, looks up, and this is unsolicited, unprovoked. He didn't have a Sunday school lesson beforehand. 
I didn't read him a Bible passage. He just looks up and he says, wow, God created all this. And in my heart, I was like, I'm so proud of my little buddy. Like he's experiencing the sky by way of God. Like he, he's, he's, you know, and he's, he's going to a school that where they don't teach that, right? That, that, that somehow it all just kind of banged out there and it, was, it just appeared somehow. It's like God did this. And I'm just like, yeah, buddy, he did. And I started to quote Isaiah 40 to him where it says, do you know the prophet Isaiah said, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these? He who calls out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I should have just shut my mouth rather than quote scripture. But at that moment, I was just so overwhelmed, and I just, my boy was experiencing this. And, you know, we lose that. We just do. We don't take the time for that, especially as you get older. The wonder is lost. Or we get so focused on other things that really, at the end of the day, don't matter. That are either human-focused or folly-focused or foolishness-focused. Recognizing that, you know, probably 10 minutes under an open sky is better than an hour on Instagram, Facebook, or CNN. Because they don't tend to declare the glory of God. Nothing wrong with social media. Man, it seems like the ancients had a way of saying, I need the beauty of what God created to soak into my soul and remind you how big he is. It's something you need to recover and have space for. It's something that feeds the soul and changes the soul. It communicates. It says, I am here. This is who I am. And that's, that's one of the ways you can feed your soul. You have to take the time to do it. And you know, I will add, because the New Testament declares to us that it's the Son, that is S-O-N, Jesus, who is the agent of creation, he created all things and sustains all things, that's Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 1, that we could say with complete confidence that the heavens declare the glory of Christ. Well, that's part one. It's just like, whew, it's awesome. If you've lost the awe of God, you need to get out of the city. <laughs> Go for a walk in mere woods. Go up to Yosemite. Or if you can't hike because you don't have the health, your legs aren't working, just sit on your back patio sometime in the dark. And just look and let it soak in. That's one of the things David did. Looked up and was astonished and awed by God. But then he changed his course. Right after this like the heavens declare the glory, the magnificence of God, he turns and he focuses attention on the Torah, or his Bible at the time, which probably was just the first five books of the Bible, um, or the Law of Moses. We have a lot more now, um, and we have the central subject of it revealed, that is the person of Christ, which all the words point to. But he is, expounds on, like the glory of God's word, if the first one was the glory of God as creator of all things in the heavens, the second part here, oh, by the way, I, I failed to tell you. He insists that this revelation, this communication of, of, of the glory of God is constant and it's universal. It is day to day, night to night, and there's no place, no place on planet earth where there is not preaching happening. Preaching happening from the creation. But the second part has to do not so much 
with the glory of God revealed in the word as much as the glory of the word itself. That is, that is you know, tangibly what we have here. That he discusses for us all the amazing ways that it benefits um, us. Now, I'm not going to focus in on any particular because there's a lot, there's a, like a long list here. Well, relatively long list, too long to get through if we were to focus on each one for, for five minutes. But let me just show you a, the repetition in it. You notice how many times that the Lord is referenced, the holy name of Yahweh wants us to know that it's not just any word, it's not a word of a psychologist, not a word of a scholar or a, an academic. This is the word of Yahweh. It's the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. That, that's what makes it supreme, is they're his words. This is his instruction to us. And just so we're clear, when it talks about the law of the Lord, He's not just talking about a list of rules, as in thou shalt. Now, that's in there, too. But, but the, the Torah, or the law of the Lord, the word, is first and foremost revelation. It declares to us who God is, his heart, his character, what he's done, his way, and then tells us how we're supposed to live in proper relationship with him, and ultimately pointing us to redemption in Jesus Christ. So it's not just a list of rules. This is the word of Yahweh. And he has these adjectives Seven to be exact, number of perfection, whether that was intended or not, I don't know. But it's like, it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, it's righteous. In other words, there's nothing like it. It's unadulterated, it's perfect, it's unstained. It can always be relied upon, it's sound. And we have to be confident of that as believers, that the, that the word is the word, it is perfect. Nothing wrong with it. It's infallible and inerrant. It is perfect. So it's the word of Yahweh. All of these adjectives tell us that it is perfect and flawless. But then he goes on to talk about just the benefits of it in the human soul. In here, in the spirit, in the heart, and in life. It's, it revives us. gives us strength. increases our, our vitality in our, in our souls. It makes wise the simple you want to grow wise, and then the scripture will, will give you wisdom that you can't get in any other place or any other book. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens. I mean, these are the practical, powerful benefits of the word of God in the human soul, taking it in. There you have it. It's the word of the Lord. You have all of these adjectives that tell us that it is flawless and perfect and sound and trustable and what it does to us, what it's supposed to do to us. And as a, as, a, as a result of all of this, it's just describing for us not the glories of God, but the glories of his word. It is absolutely, supremely desirable. It is desire to, to be desired more than gold. It's supremely valuable. That is much fine gold. It's supremely desirable in terms of our own pleasure and satisfaction, which is why it's like honey. And it is supremely practical, which is why he ends with, you know, if a person keeps it, it'll It'll, it'll, it'll be, lead to reward, and by listening, it will keep a servant from doing bad things. That is, it, it warns us. So it's, it's practical. So in every way, it's held up as this is absolutely amazing, and this has power for your soul. Now, question that would arise is like, okay, I hear what you're saying, and I'm reading it, Dan, but I don't experience that. 
That's the honest question. I read the Bible. I don't get revived. I don't always feel joy or I don't feel joy at all. I don't understand what it means by enlightening. And I certainly don't think of it as more important than gold. If I, someone gave me a $100 bill or the book of Hebrews, which would I choose? $100 bill, probably. Do I really find it sweet and satisfying like honey? And there we come to, you know, the, the, the rub. There's perhaps many different reasons why God's word isn't that to you. One might be simply that you don't have the spirit of God in you, in which case, because I, I really believe the spirit, the presence of God yearns for the word. So if there's no yearning for the word, maybe the spirit of God isn't in you. And now's the time to figure that out. Or maybe we have learned to treat the scripture like our culture treats information. That is, we tend to be trained to learn information from reading rather than assimilating truth. That is, we tend to focus on what's here, not the complete habitation of truth throughout all of life, affections, understanding, mind, actions, volition, everything. I think the Bible would teach us that we don't truly know the word until it dwells in us. And it affects every aspect of our lives. Not, not just in here. I've met a lot of people that know a lot about the Bible. They can recite all of the books in proper order and probably a summary, some, a summary statement of each of the books. Fantastic. If it hasn't changed here or here, what you do, then you simply know about it. You don't really know it. Rather than to, okay, I don't just need to, to know the information of this. And I, I might be preaching to the choir, maybe I'm not. But you know the way like Jesus describes the word, like bread? Um, a man shall not live by bread alone. And how does a man live on bread? Well, he, he eats it, unless you're, you know, gluten intolerant. Um, is he eats it, the idea is food. Every day, he's got to eat it. It nourishes, it becomes part of a person. A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. In other words, it not only needs to be taken in, it becomes part of us. It becomes digested into the very fabric of our spirit. And until that's, until that's happening, we're cutting it short. Or the way the Apostle Paul says, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell. It's like someone coming to live in your home, a living, vibrant, active person in your home. They viewed truth as vital, as active, as powerful. It comes in and it, it takes over. And that's what they desired, and that's what they prayed for, us to live by every word and to have the word of Christ actually inhabit our entire being. And that's, that's some of what we have to recover, is not only recognizing how central and important and supreme this book is, but, if, but, but not stopping short of just knowing it, but actually having it inhabit you. So that it revives you and, and, and it does give you strength and, and shows you the way and enlightens your heart 
It happens. I know it happens. People have experienced this. I have experienced times where I had nothing else but the word. And it's what holds you true. So if we want to, and if I could encourage you as you read, don't read to gather information alone. I mean, it may start there, but it certainly shouldn't end there. But read the Bible. This helps me. Read it relationally. It is in first order revelation of God who loves you. To read it to know his heart. To know that the Bible at the very center is is a book written because God has chosen by grace to establish relationship with his creatures. This is who I am. David seemed to read it that way. You know, when he, he had his little Torah, his five books, the verse he quotes the most in all of his psalms, you want to know what it is? It's, it's uh, Exodus 34.6. About God's abounding steadfast love and faithfulness. You'll find that over and over and over again in his psalms. As if this is the heart behind the Torah. Is I understand that God gives me commands. Why? Because he loves me. I understand that God is merciful to those who humble themselves and ask um, forgiveness. Why? Because God loves me. He read it relationally. And then to read it reflectively instead of just reading it and, and, you know, putting it away and then not dwelling on it at all the rest of the day. It's like taking time to reflect and go, okay, I, I see the words. I see the words right there in front of me. What does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? What are the implications of this for my heart? What are the implications of this for my family? What are the implications of this for my, my, my church? What are the implications of this for our world? What are the implications of this for some of the ills of our world? And you might be thinking, well, I I don't have time for that, Dan. I just don't for that kind of reflection on God's word. Well, let me just put it this way. You need to make time. We need to be a people, a church that encourages one another to let the word dwell in us richly and to be able to ask each other without being legalistic. Like, how, how how is God's word Um, changing you this week. What is it saying to you? So you have part one. It's like, how do you nurture like a God-oriented life? How do you you deepen your affection and passion for God? I'll tell you, creation preaches to us. And then we have a book that expounds to us the wonder of who God is and his love for us, especially the death and resurrection of the son. But then there's one final piece that's really important to grasp, and, and it's, it's where he ends. It's where he ends. He ends in a petition. He recognizes he's completely and absolutely dependent upon God's moving in strength and grace in order for him to actually for the word to actually make an impact into his life. So he closes his psalm that talks about the glory of God in creation and the glory of his word that's so powerful in the human soul by saying, basically, can you help me? This is one of the things that makes David a man after God's own heart. He knew he was needy and he knew he was poor of spirit, as Jesus said. So he has, says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent. That's a way of talking about justification. How is a sinner justified? Well, the only answer is 
through Christ Jesus. He's declared me innocent from those hidden faults that I can't see myself. Keep back or protect me from, from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are, are simply sins that you know ahead of time. This is full on wrong. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And probably with the spirit of I know God's forgiving, so he'll forgive me. Sins of presumption. And then he goes on to say, and let them, that is the sins of presumption, when we willingly sin against the Lord, knowing full well it's wrong, presuming upon forgiveness, let them not have dominion over me. Don't let me become a slave to them. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of, of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, let what comes out here, and let what happens in here be pleasing to you. That's, 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 that's how he's closing this. It's like our worst enemy, church, is ourselves. That's why he's talking about his own flaws, his own at least potential proclivity to, to run headlong into a sin he knows is wrong, which he did with Bathsheba, and to be enslaved by it. He's like, I need help. I need help. I need your grace and I need your mercy so that I can please you with my life. That prayer, that petition for grace is an expression of the fact that he knows he can't do it by himself. This is the gospel, right? But the belief that God can do it. So here you have this, in in my thinking, just an amazing combination of the magnificence of God in creation that we need to take time to, to, to soak into life. The amazing glory of God's word and what it tells us and what it does to our hearts. But then the realization that, you know what, I still, even having these things, apart from you helping me, I can't make it. It's pretty good. Do we have that same sense of dependence and humility that cries out in prayer, says, all right, God, you got to help us now. That's, that's something that the Lord uh, offers grace to, right? He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So listen, back to the question. How do you rate yourself? Are you devoted to growing in your relationship with God? Are you devoted to him? Are you devoted to his word? Or are you a dabbler? Devoted or a dabbler? Pretty important question. And I pray by the grace of God that if you are in the more dabble side of things, then maybe this will be an incentive for you, an encouragement to you to, you know what, I, I need to set my course to true north again. And I know where I'm supposed to be, and I've become lazy, I've become indifferent, and it's time for that to change. And what better way to start than coming to the Lord's table just to be reminded once again of the cost of our rescue I like the song that David chose right before the message. Um, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. And that's what we should be doing. But that's predicated on the fact that God or Jesus first loved us and gave his life for us. And that ought to motivate us to offer everything back in return. So as you come to the table this morning, let's consider the great cost and consider how God would have you move forward in this um, um, in this psalm of what it calls us to do. Most of you know how we do communion here. If not, if you're new, just just a couple words of instruction. Um, yeah, after I pray, um, 
feel free to come up if you're a follower of Christ. Uh, this, is, this is a table for the followers of Jesus who trust in him. Um, we have gluten-free bread and, and uh, also regular bread. You just need to ask for it. And uh, again, reminders, these are reminders, tangible reminders. Is the, the cup is the blood, represents the blood, and the bread is his body, which was given for us. And he has commanded that we do this. And as often as we do it, we remember him. So if I could ask those who are going to serve communion this morning to come up as I pray. And um, I don't think I'm leaving any instruction out. Father, we thank you once again for the powerful reminder of your um, amazing, astounding, and infinite grace um, that not only came down into our fallen, dirty world, but took upon yourself our own sin and filth and then paid for it completely. Remind us of your love this morning, Father, through the elements of bread and cup and enable us just to once again experience a fresh dose of your love and grace. And I pray this in Christ's name.